Uh, if you have your copy of the scriptures in front of you, you can turn to 1 Peter 1. I'm going to read from verse 22. Um, while you're turning there, if you don't know me, my name is Ben King. Uh, and as Trev prayed, I have the privilege of uh, being able to regularly uh, preach the word here. Um, and by God's grace, I have that opportunity this morning. And uh, I can get here myself. And I'm excited to do it uh, because uh, God's word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Uh, so if you have your Bible open, you guys there? Okay, praise God. Let's, uh, let me listen as I read. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. This is God's word. Uh, would you pray with, uh, again with me? Lord, uh, your, your word is powerful. Your word, uh, we see in the scriptures, is your doing. Your speaking is your doing. And so we pray now that through the proclamation of your word, you would do wonderful things for your people that you would nourish them and feed them and convict them and strengthen them, that you would put courage into us, that you would call us to greater degrees of faithfulness and love and obedience. And Lord, we pray that you would do it for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your name. And we know that that will only happen through the working of your spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit to make this word bear fruit in our hearts. We know that, that nothing good will happen here this morning apart from the working of your spirit through your word. So we pray that you would do that now for your glory and for our joy in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1970, Francis Schaeffer wrote what he considered to be one of his most important works, uh, the title, Mark, the, the Mark of a Christian, The Mark of the Christian. Uh, and in it, he asserts that the primary mark of God's people before a watching world is, can you guess it, the primary mark of God's people? Any kids, can you guess what, what I'm going to say? Yeah. Yeah, it's love. He argued that this love should not be confused with mere institutional unity. Okay, so this isn't just a towing the company line. This isn't merely tolerating people that share your same faith. No, this is a real 
sincere and devoted love that is attractive and compelling to the world. And for Schaefer, and he's really just following Jesus' teaching here, nothing less is at stake in Christian love than the very gospel itself. At one point, he writes this jarring quote, if we do not show love to one another, that is, if Christians are not actively and devotedly loving one another, then the world has every right to question whether Christianity is true. If we do not show love to one another, then the world has every right to question whether Christianity is true. Our life together as brothers and sisters is intended by God to be a compelling witness to the world, both both of the truth of the gospel and of the power of the gospel. So how are we doing? How are you doing? If you're new here this morning, we are in the middle of a series through Peter's first epistle, and he's writing to Christians. I, I, I keep trying to give you this background, and you'll know it, so by the end we get to First Peter, you know exactly what's going on here. He's writing to Christians who are increasingly facing persecution and suffering, and he wants to encourage them, and he wants to equip them to live godly lives before the unbelieving world in the face of that suffering. And so he begins his letter by holding out to them the living hope of their eternal inheritance. This hope is what will give them strength to endure with grace and poise while they remain here as sojourners and exiles. And he goes on to argue that because of our salvation, our lives should be marked by hope and holiness and fear. That's what we've looked at in the past three weeks. So you might say that to be saved is to have your heart reoriented before God. In other words, there is a a vertical dimension to our salvation, to our redemption. There's a vertical dimension. We are restored to relationship, right relationship with God. But our, you need, this is what you need to understand. Our redemption does not just reorient us vertically, but it reorients us horizontally as well. See, if faith in Christ makes us new and makes us all children of God, it also then necessarily makes us all brothers and sisters, and so we should love one another. That's the sermon. That's Paul's point here. You cannot truly love God but remain indifferent or apathetic to his people. To love God means to love his people. They they are mutually inclusive. This love is one of the ways, if not the main way, that we demonstrate the truth and the power of the gospel before a watching world. And so the Lord's call to us this morning is to love one another. To love one another. So let's examine this exhortation to love one another under three headings. Here they are. What the gospel makes us into. That's number one. What the gospel moves us to do. That's number two. 
and how the gospel does it. Number three, what the gospel makes us, what the gospel moves us to do, and how the gospel does it. So what does the gospel make us into? Well, the gospel makes us into lots of things. But here, Peter drills down into this reality, that the gospel makes us family. The gospel makes us family. Look at verse 22 again. Peter says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere, what kind of love? A brotherly love. A brotherly love. A family love. Now he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. This is Peter's way of saying that through union with Christ, by faith in the gospel, our souls have been cleansed and made pure before God. You say, faith, where's faith there? I thought Peter said obedience. Well, that's true. Uh, But what Peter has in mind here in using this word, the obedience of the truth, is not rule following, it's uh, it's not good works, but it is actually faith in the gospel. And Peter, I know this is sort of counterintuitive, but faith Uh, But Peter uses the language of obedience throughout this letter to actually describe faith. Uh, You can see it in his opening greeting. You can see it in 1 Peter 4, 17. But it's really actually most clear uh, in the very next chapter of this letter, 1 Peter 2, 7, 8. If you have your Bible open, you should be able to not even flip a page. You should be able to just see it. Look at 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8. He says, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe... The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Do you see what he's doing there? See, those who believe are contrasted with those who disobey the word. So to believe is to obey the word or to obey the truth. To disbelieve is to disobey the word and therefore to stumble. And Peter's not alone in using the language of obedience to describe faith in Christ. Uh, You may remember that in Paul's opening letter to the Romans, he says that God gave him grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. So the point is that Peter is saying, your souls have been made pure and clean through faith in the truth which later, he says, is the word of God. And verse 25 reveals that this word is none other than the good news, the gospel. And now he says this obedience to the truth is for something. Okay, that was really just by way of giving, like, helping you see the infrastructure and the mechanics of this passage. But here's the main point. Do you see there in verse 22, he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for Your faith in Christ, your redemption, your salvation, it's for something. What is it for? For a sincere brotherly love. The redemption of our souls through faith in the gospel is not the end in and of itself. No, God has saved you in Christ Jesus with a goal, with an end, with a purpose. You have been saved in part for a sincere brotherly love. Okay, that's not, that's not all. That's not the only goal. That's not the only end. So of course, one of the great ends is you've been saved for right relationship with God, for peace 
with God, for joy in God. But you have also been saved for a sincere brotherly love. In other words, God saved you to make you all a part of his family together. Now, this is one of the great ends or the great purposes of the gospel, to reconcile us to God, who is our heavenly Father, and to one another as brothers and sisters in order to create a new redeemed family. And that means, listen, let me t- are you tracking with me? Vertical, horizontal. He's redeemed us. We have right relationship with God, but he's done that for a purpose, right? So that we would also have a right relationship with one another. This means we cannot think about our faith only in terms of our personal relationship with God. Should you think about your faith in terms of your personal relationship with God? Yes, you hear me saying that, right? Okay, but not only that. Many of us grew up hearing uh, that you shouldn't talk about, there's you know, three things that are off the table. I wonder if you can guess them. What, what three things shouldn't you talk about in mixed company? Politics and money. Politics, religion, and money. And, and why is that? Why is that? Because your religious views, that's a private thing. That's between you and God. No one else needs to be involved in that. Or when, when pressed, uh, some Christians just seem to think that they d- uh, don't, don't need the church. They, d- they don't need other relationships. They can just you know, sit at home and watch their favorite YouTube preacher and listen to Caleb on the radio, and, th- and it's, it's just me and Jesus, and we're good. But don't you see, this is totally at odds with what the gospel is and what it does. You see, at the very heart of the gospel is God's work to adopt us into his family, to make us into his children. And that's what we heard earlier on in the service, right? You remember uh, Jeremy read the assurance of pardon, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's adoption language. That's family language. And in any, any adoption, think with me about like a human adoption for a second, right? Just or, uh, orphans getting adopted. In any adoption, it is self-evidently true that the child not only receives a new relationship with their adoptive parents, but with a, uh, also a new relationship with the children of those adoptive parents. You see, Primarily what adoption is about is giving orphans a new mother and a new father. But by virtue of that adoption, by virtue of their new relationship with their new father and their new mother, they also get a whole new family. They get new brothers. They get new sisters. They get an uncle. They get an aunt. They get cousins. They get a new family. And so it is in Christ. When we come into right relationship with our heavenly father, you get a new family. You get brothers and sisters. You get weird uncles. You get crazy cousins. And that's why, you know, in 1 John, the basic argument, one of the main themes throughout 1 John is that you cannot love God without loving his people. That's why, John just comes down, he's like, if you don't love people, you don't love God. Period. They're mutually inclusive. To love God necessarily is to love one another because to love your heavenly Father is to love His children. And, and now notice what the foundation of this family is. What is the foundation? What is the thing that makes this family? It is obedience to the truth. 
It is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we are not a family because of a shared biological DNA, but because of a shared spiritual DNA. That is a new heart through faith in Christ's finished work. And so God's family, listen to me, God's family is not defined by age or race or gender or culture of origin or socioeconomic status or uh, educational background or personal interest. What binds us together, what makes us family, is our common faith in Christ which makes us brothers and sisters. Not will make us, not is making us, it has made us brothers and sisters. There is a spiritual reality that by virtue of your union with Christ by faith, you are brothers and sisters, whether you recognize it or not. And I've, I've, you know, last week or the week before, I, I told you part of one of Peter's arguments is to be what you are. You know, you are holy, so be holy. Look, you are brothers and sisters, so love one another. Be what you are. That's Peter's argument. Now listen, uh, no family on this side of glory is without its issues. It's not perfect. So we are God's family. We, we, we might be dysfunctional in some ways. We, we might be... It might be weird in some ways. Like I said, you know, you, you, you come into the church and there's some, there's some weird uncles and some crazy aunts and some rowdy cousins. Maybe you're the rowdy cousin. Maybe you're the, maybe you're the weird aunt or the crazy uncle. I don't know. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm the crazy uncle. But, the, but listen, but the point is, you're family. It's dysfunctional. It's messy. It's weird. But, but in Christ, we are family. Unique weaknesses and strengths, different predispositions to sin, different capacities and personalities, different histories, different interests, different backgrounds and challenges unique to our own lives that impact our family. But the, but the thing that binds us, the, the thing that you, listen, you have more in common with a fellow believer, infinitely so, infinitely more in common with a fellow believer than your closest unbelieving family member. Because you share Christ in common. And listen, let, before I move on, so point one, he makes us into family. Before I move on, I, I want to talk to you about your earthly families in relationship to the church that is God's family. Some of you come from really sweet and wonderful earthly families. Uh, some of you come from awful and abusive families. Some of you are in between and some of you have just lost family. And, and from a biological family standpoint, you're just here all alone in the world. Whatever your family situation, it is whispering to you and pointing you to the eternal, joyous reality of being a part of God's family. You, you, you see, if you've come from a really awful and abusive and like toxic messed up family, that reality is pointing you to the fact that there is a family that is built upon love. There is a family in Christ Jesus that is built upon love. Grounded, rooted in God's word, through, Christ, through faith in Christ, there is a family 
with mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters that is marked by love. And though you may struggle in this life to have productive, good, fulfilling relationships with your earthly family, in the church you have a family. Some of you that come from these really good families, you know, these really wonderful families, even those families, like the best experiences you have in those families, you know, like when everything's just the way it should be, you know, like Christmas morning or something, or like on vacation, when everything's just the way, your family's together, and everyone's there, and it feels just the way it should, even that is just the tiniest little flicker the tiniest little whisper of the joys of being a part of God's eternal family in Christ Jesus. It's just a pointer to how good it is to be in the family of God. And again, I said some of you have lost your family. Maybe you're just completely alone in the world, but not when you're a Christian. That's Not when you're a Christian, though. Not when you're a Christian. In Christ, you have a family that's permanent. That's eternal. Do you ever think about that? Like your earthly biological family is, is going to end. Like praise God for those of you who have family members and they're believers. But like your earthly family, it's, gonna, it's, it's not going to go on into eternity. But God's family does. Like look, humor me, like look around for a second. Okay, look around. Do you see each other? You guys are going to be family for all eternity. You're not just brothers and sisters on this side of glory. You are going to be family forever. Listen, this is a sturdy love. A family that's built to last because it's built upon Christ. Because it's built upon His Word. It's a family that goes on forever. Okay, I keep talking about this forever. Uh, that's what the gospel, it makes you into family. What does the gospel move you to do? It moves us to love one another. The gospel makes us into family, and the gospel, it moves us to love one another. Look, look at verse 22 again. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. What's the conclusion of that? Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He's made you brothers and sisters, so love one another. Now, hopefully I'm not telling you something you don't already know, but good families, they love one another. And the obvious, the obvious consequence of being made into family is that we are to love one another. This is the defining characteristic of God's people in Christ. Remember, it's the thing that Jesus says in John 13, 35. They will know you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. Everything else that we are called to, to be and to do for one another, can be fit into this larger bucket, under this larger banner of love one another. You know, Jonathan Edwards uh, preached a sermon. If you know Jonathan Edwards, he's a, uh, probably the uh, most well-known American theologian uh, and uh, pastor. He wrote a sermon. Everyone knows him for uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God, but he also wrote a sermon uh, that is wonderfully titled, Heaven is a World of Love. 
And do you know what you know when, when he pictures heaven, the, the fullness, the full consummation of our identity and relationship with God, the full consummation, therefore, of our relationship with one another? Do you know how he describes our relationship between one another? Everything is subsumed and described and experienced as love. And it, think about this. Just think about like the fruits of the Spirit, right? Like, First of all, it begins with what? Love, right? And you really, you could think about everything that comes after that as just the consequence or the necessary effect of loving one another. Like, be patient with one another. Why? Because you love one another. Forgive one another. Why? Because you love one another. You know, be steadfast, be faithful, be devoted to one another. Why? Because you love one another. And all of this, all of our relationship with God and with one another can be described in, in, with this word, that we ought to love one another. <clears throat> now, we need to be a little bit careful here because anytime we use the word love, we're wading into a sea of bad definitions of erroneous thinking about what love is. You know as well as I do that for much of the world, love has been just reduced to a feeling, uh, or, or love means something like, you know, like unfettered approval and affirmation of someone's decisions, whether they are destructive to them or not. But let me remind you that this is a love that is built on truth. Right? It's a family that, that's come together because of their obedience to the truth. And love is built upon truth. And so we are a people characterized by a purity of soul through an obedience to the truth. So our love is to be patterned after God's own love. In, in other words, like if we're trying to get at a definition of what love is, right, we know we are loving someone well when, they are, when we are loving them the way God has loved us. Right? God is love. That's, and by the way, that doesn't mean that God conforms to some definition of love. What God does is definitionally loving because He does it, because, it, because He is love. And so, what I'm telling you is if we want to know how to love one another, what we need to do is look at God and see how He loves us. Now, Peter describes that love here in two ways. He says it's sincere and it's earnest. Do you see that? For a sincere brotherly love. And he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So a sincere and earnest love. Now, baked into those adjectives, I think uh, I'm going to try and explain them, is I think three ways in which we're to love one another. So baked into those adjectives, sincere and earnest, are I think three ways in which we're supposed to love one another. First, our love should be genuine. Our love should be genuine. At the risk of stating the obvious, Peter wants these Christians to pursue not a pretend or a put-on love, but a real, sincere, genuine love for one another. Now, you know what the opposite of this is like. You see, we're coming up on holiday season, right? Thanksgiving is coming up, and then Christmas is coming up, and you know what it will be like, many of you know what it will be like, to go to family gatherings. And in those family gatherings, there's unspoken tension and unspoken bitterness, and everyone will put on a mask and pretend like they, they love each other, right? It'll, they'll, they'll, they'll sort of like do the thing, 
They'll go to they'll go to the they'll go to the uh, the party and they'll exchange niceties and small talk and conversation. Everyone pretends like they love one another, but underneath, you know, there's like this this, this rot, this mold in the family. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. It's not going to be that way in God's family. It's a it's a genuine love, a sincere. It's not put on. It's not two faced. It's not like I show up to the party and like shake your hand and smile at you and ask how the kids are doing in, before, you know, in front of you, but then at home, you know, I just talk about how awful a person you are. It's not that kind of love. It's a genuine, sincere love. In the original language, uh, it, 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 it says, uh, love one another earnestly, and the, the translators here translate it as from a pure heart, but it's really just from the heart. So the Greek word heart, cardia, just love, love from the heart. Our love for one another is supposed to flow from a real affection, a genuine longing, a true concern for the people's well-being. Now, here's the thing with this kind of love. Let me tell you. I'm going to give you a little warning right now. Here's the thing with this kind of love, this genuine, sincere, I'm all in with you kind of love. It's dangerous. It's risky. It's a dangerous kind of love. It's risky because you have to become vulnerable to love in this way. You have to open yourself up to the potential of being hurt. And so for a lot of people, it actually feels safer to to close up, to wall off, to keep others at arm's length so, so you can mitigate the risk of damage. And I don't I don't want to over I don't want to sound overly dramatic here. But this is one of the surest ways to destroy your own soul. As usual, uh, C.S. Lewis puts this better than probably anyone. He says this, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness, but in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, unredeemable. You see what he's saying? He's saying to refuse to give yourself to loving others is to harden your heart to the point it becomes so impenetrable, so thick, so bulletproof that it just begins to shrivel. Humans were made. We were made by God's design. We were made to love God and to love one another. And like a muscle, we have to exercise it in order for it to grow. But if we don't, eventually the love muscle atrophies and what is left is something unhuman, something soulless, something irredeemable fit only for destruction. And so Peter says our love for one another should be genuine. It's risky It's dangerous, but it's the way to a a soul that is alive and vibrant. So he says your love needs to be genuine. Number two, he says 
sincere and earnest. A sincere and earnest love is a committed love. It's a, a devoted love, an active love. And you, you see, there are twin ditches that we can fall into when we think about love. On the one hand, you can settle for a hypocritical, pretend love that just goes through the motions. That's sort of like the family holiday love. And Peter says, no, 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 no. Love is affectionate. It's genuine. It's sincere. But you can also think of love the way so many people do today as just a feeling, like butterflies in your stomach. And to that, Peter says, no, 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 no. Also, love means real commitment and real devotion that works itself out in action. It's not a fair weather friendship. It's not love when it's convenient. It is a commitment to pursue one another's best interest, even when it's hard. Now, if, if you've been here for any length of time, uh, you know, and if you're just new, I'll let you know, uh, that here at J.C. Williamstown, we take membership in the church very seriously. And I want you to know that the reason we take membership very seriously is because we take this command to love one another seriously. Do you know what I'm saying? We take membership seriously because we're taking this command to love one another seriously, and you cannot love one another without commitment. You can't. That's why marriages begin with vows. You ever know, you've all been to marriages. And how does that marriage begin? It begins with commitment. It begins with a vow. I promise. Sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, for better or worse, I'm with you. Now, church membership is not marriage vows. Uh, <clears throat> but it is a commitment. It is a commitment to your brothers and sisters to say, I'm with you. I'm not going anywhere. What we share in common, our common faith in Christ, that makes us family. So I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. And you see, this, bulk, this bucks against our culture's idea of love. The culture, you know, they say, like, love requires freedom. You know, love requires options. But love can only really flourish in the environment of commitment because when two people, look, this is how this works. And if, you, if you've sat in a membership class, I'm sure I've said this to you. See, see, when two people look across the table from one another and they say to one another, I love you and I'm not leaving, not going anywhere, doesn't matter what you show me. You pull out some ugly sin, I'm going to minister the gospel to you in grace and kindness. If you sin against me, I'm going to forgive you. When two people sit across a table and say that to one another, then all of a sudden, now vulnerability is possible. right? Because I know that I can expose the unsightly parts of myself. I can show you those little dark corners of my heart, and you're not going to leave. But without that commitment, listen, without that commitment, you have two people who are sitting across the table from one another, and the possibility exists. Like, you might show me something, I'm going to be like, that's too ugly for me. I'm out of here. Guess what I'm not going to do? I'm just going to put on my mask. I'm just going to play a part, because I don't want to risk upsetting you. I don't want to risk offending you or, or risk you leaving because you see something in me, me that's so ugly that, you, that you're just like, I'm out of here. Do, do you see how love requires, real love Real, vulnerable, sincere, genuine love requires commitment. It requires us to say to one another, as members of the church, I'm not leaving. Jesus promises, I will never leave nor forsake you. And the way that that gets worked out and the way that we live to, together is, I will never leave nor forsake you. Okay, now, don't, hear, don't mishear what I'm saying. I'm not saying, like, as soon as you become the member of a church, you're, you're a member of that church forever and ever and ever. Okay, I'm talking about a spiritual 
a, a, a spirit of commitment. You know, you move, your job takes you elsewhere or, you know, fa- some family. Okay, that, there's good reasons to leave a church. But what I'm saying is membership in the church is people consciously saying to one another, I'm committing to love you through everything, through the good stuff, through the hard stuff, through the easy stuff, for the weeping and the crying and the celebrating and the rejoicing. I'm with you. And God has made it this way. He's made us to need one another. We are a family, and as a family, we rise and fall together. And you, listen to me, you cannot reach maturity in Christ apart from your brothers and sisters. I've said it before, and I will say it again. I have never seen one person who professed Christ and who had separated themselves from the church thriving in their faith. Never seen it. Never seen a person who is like keeping the church at arm's length, keeping brothers and sisters at arm's length thriving in their faith. It does not happen because we need one another. Look, let me, this is not my notes. Let me just give you an example. How are you going to grow in forgiveness if you're not around people who can sin against you? How are you going to grow in patience if you're not around people who annoy you? I told you it's a family and we get messed up. We get dysfunctional and we get weird. And you may annoy one another, and that is God's gracious work of producing in you the fruits of the Spirit, of patience and forbearance and forgiveness and love. Don't you see? Okay, I got a lot more here, but I'm going to keep going. Uh, Love is genuine. Sincere, earnest love is genuine. It's committed. And lastly, it's, it's sacrificial. It's sacrificial. Listen, the word earnest here in the original language, it comes from the root, are you ready for this? To extend yourself or to stretch yourself. The idea is that to love one another earnestly is to be willing to extend ourselves, to stretch ourselves out, to sacrifice for the good of another. In the world's eyes, this is perhaps the most jarring and compelling part of the love we are to show to one another. It's a love that says, I want to pursue your well-being even at great cost to myself. And anyone that has ever truly loved someone knows that all love is costly. Look, even if you've had a pet that you really loved, you know that it costs you. It costs you money, it costs you time, it costs you resources, and it costs you an emotional burden. When, you're, when your pet is sick or something, or when your pet dies, it, it costs you, because real love is always costly. How much more so than when we talk about our brothers and sisters? Love costs us. When the world looks in and sees people joyfully sacrificing resources and time and money and energy and material belongings and emotional capacity and future plans and so on, many will wonder, what is going on? You see, for for many people in the world, this is what love looks like. I talked a little bit about ways in which love gets misconstrued. For many people, love looks like this. I will do for you if you will do for me. That's what love looks like. I will do for you if you will do for me. But that's not how God's people love. They do for others because of what's been done for them. That's how they love. They do for others because of what's been done for them. And when unbelievers see that kind of love, many will notice that something is different, and some will ask why, and then we have the great privilege of proclaiming how God has loved us so lavishly in Christ. 
You see, when we live lives of sacrificial love, we testify to our true citizenship, to our identity as sojourners and pilgrims, and to the transformative power of the gospel. The gospel takes people, listen, look around again, okay? The, the gospel takes people who have no earthly business relating to one another and being together and says, you're family. Like, t- totally different interests, totally different backgrounds, totally different cultures, totally different life season, totally different socioeconomic setup, totally different educational background. You're just different. And in the world, it's just like no business being together. And yet in the gospel, it's like your family, your brothers and sisters. And it's beautiful. Now, uh, before I move on, uh, move on I, I know I've said this to you as a congregation before, uh, but I want to be a pastor who makes a re- regular habit of praising God for evidences of grace in this body, uh, and also a pastor who regularly uh, encourages you. And so I, I want to say, I think by God's grace, this is an area where we as a church are strong. When people visit or, or when people, uh, um, when I talk to people ab- about our church who have, who have come, t- uh, virtually always what I hear is, you guys seem to really love one another. Like, you, you guys come, you, you, you spend time together, you hang out, you're spending time throughout the week. Like, you guys really seem to love, what, there's a genuineness about the love here. This isn't just a show. You guys come in and, 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 and you, again, spend time throughout the week, and it seems like you really are committed and you, and you love one another. That's, an ev- that's, a, that's by God's grace, brothers and sisters. That's, that's a work of his grace in our midst because of the gospel. And, and so I'm just going to take a page out of Paul's playbook here in 1 Thessalonians. This is what he says to the saints in uh, Thessal- uh, Thessalonica. He says, uh, now concerning brotherly love, this is my encouragement to you, by the way. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing Okay, this is not true. You're not loving all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Uh, <laughs> but you are, lo- you are loving one another. Uh, you're loving brothers and sisters elsewhere as well. But we urge you, and he, he, this, that's my encouragement, like praise God, you are loving one another. You've been taught by God to love one another. Here's my exhortation. It's Paul's exhortation. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I urge you, do this all the more. You can't, listen, you can't love each other too much. You're not going to get to a point where you're like, ooh, I need to scale that back. I'm, I'm loving my brothers and sisters too much. No, 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 no. Love one another more and more. Like, how much have you been loved by God in Christ? So love one another. So that's what the gospel makes us. The gospel makes us family. The gospel moves us to love one another. And lastly, as I close this thing down, how does the gospel do it? How does the gospel do it? Look again at our passage. Peter spells it out for us. He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. You see, here's Peter's logic. We ought to love one another, not only because he makes us into family, but because he has made us new. 
He's made us new creatures. He's given us new hearts. He has transformed us by the word of the gospel into new creatures who share in his nature. And guess what that nature is? It's love. At first glance, it might not be immediately apparent why he says, love one another since you've been born again. But think about it. Peter uses the analogy of human procreation. In our natural birth, we come into existence, without getting too graphic here, through perishable seed. And so we necessarily share in the perishable nature of that seed. Because of that, we ourselves are perishable. But in the new birth, in the new birth, through the gospel, we are born not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of, of God. Because you have been born of imperishable seed, you share in the nature of that seed such that you have eternal life. And how can, how can we know that we have eternal life? Because the word of God abides and remains forever. The seed itself is an eternal seed. It's an eternal seed that has been sowed into your heart that bears the fruit springing up to eternal life. That's why you have this quote here from Isaiah 40. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass, but the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. That's the seed that has been sown, the, the abiding, living, eternal word of God. And so you have eternal life, and that life is God's own life, his nature, and that nature is a nature of love. Look at how John does this too, by the way. He ties our loving one another to our new birth. 1 John 4, 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You see? To be born of God is to share in his nature, to share in his life, and to so share in his love. And listen, this is where Christianity stands absolutely alone among all the, the religions and philosophies of the world because no other religion has a, ration, a rationale for a God who has at his very core love. You know, there, there are lots of people, I'm sure you've encountered them, lots of people who say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Have you heard that? I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. And what they have is a belief in some kind of force. Like, you know, the universe is doing things for people. But the universe is impersonal. The universe is not a person. It's impersonal. And only persons can love. A force can't love. A universe can't love. It's not a person. Only persons can love. And so you, you, you can't be spiritual and not religious, or you can't, you can't have this idea that the universe is doing this thing and that thing. What, maybe if it is doing things, it's not doing them because of love. Because only persons can love. Or, or think of uh, uh, Islam. Right? In Islam, the, 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 the God of uh, Muhammad, the Muslim, the God Allah, Allah exists in, in the Quran as a single entity. He's personal, but there's, there's only one person. And so you can say, and so listen, what requires 
what do you need for love? You need multiple persons. You need relationship. So for all eternity, Allah has, has, according to the Quran, has existed as one person. So you could say, you could say that at the very core, at the very center of Allah is power, but you can't say at the very core of Allah is love because he can't love until he creates, until there's something to love. Do you see what I'm saying? But God, the God of the Bible, the true, the one, the only God who exists as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for all eternity has existed in a loving unity of three persons. You see? And so at the very core of who God is, is love. And that's the nature that we share in. So this is Peter's point. How how do we come to love? By being born again. How are we born again? By the word of God. And what is the word of God? It is the gospel. It is the good news. It is God's word of love to us through which he pours out his love and makes us a new people who share in his nature of love. You see, if you, if, if you sow orange seeds, you get an orange tree. You sow the seeds of God's word of love, and you get a tree that bears fruit, the love of God to one another. But listen, how does this word of God birth love in us? Because in the word of God, the good news is the very love of God for you. Remember, I, I prayed God's speaking is his doing. God's word, the good news, is his loving us. It is his doing. It is his actively loving us. We love because he first loved us and, and learned of his love in the gospel. And, and look, at, look how Jesus comes into the world to love us. I, I told you that the kind of love that Peter has in mind here is a genuine, committed, and sacrificial love. Do, do you know how Jesus has loved you? Loved you? He has loved you genuinely, with compassion, with sincerity, with affection. You know, all throughout the Gospels, you see this description of Jesus that he's filled with compassion, and it literally means from his insides, from his guts, from his, from his very yearning bowels, from, from, from the, the deepest parts of himself, his heart goes out to sinners, He's loved you with such sincerity, such affection. He has literally yearned for you. His love is genuine, but his love is also committed. You know, in in the Gospels it says he set his face to Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus knew that in order to love you, it was going to take him to Jerusalem where he would die on a cross and he couldn't get there fast enough. He set his face. He said, there's nothing that's going to stop me from getting there so I can love my people. His love was a committed love, no matter what it takes. Even if it means great cost to myself, I am commit. I am devoted to my people. You know, in, in the garden, I know I'm, I'm running out of time here. In the garden of Gethsemane, it says, there, there's only a couple places where this word earnestly shows up in the New Testament, and one of them is in the garden where it says, he prayed earnestly, stretched out, extending himself, extending himself. 
And you know what's happening in the garden. In the garden, God is holding out for him what he's going to have to endure in order to love you. His love is a committed love. And of course, his love is a sacrificial love. He laid down his life. The train of God's wrath was coming at you at a thousand miles an hour, and at the last second, he shoved you out of the way and jumped in front because he loved you. He took the punishment for your sin that you deserved because he loved you. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And don't you know what happened on the cross? Don't you know that on the cross what happened was that Jesus, the Son of God, lost his family? When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because his heavenly Father was casting him out. He was cutting him off. He was being severed from the family of God. Why? So that you could be brought in so that you could be welcomed into the family of God, so that you could know what it is to have God as your heavenly Father, and therefore to have one another as brothers and sisters for all eternity. And brothers and sisters, do you see how Peter says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you? You see, here's another, I know I've said this before, this is another way in which Christianity stands apart from every other religion and philosophy. See, every other religion and philosophy says, here's what you must do, right? It comes with advice. It comes with rules. It comes with suggestions. It comes with, here are the things that you must do to qualify to enter into the family. But Christianity says, Here's the good news. Here's what has been done. Apart from anything you would, could, or should have done, here is what has been done for you so that you might receive entrance into the family of God by God's grace alone. Not because of anything that you've done, but because of a father sacrificing his own beloved son so that you could be counted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. There's this very interesting passage at the, end of the, uh, at the beginning of the book of Hebrews uh, where it says this, uh, Hebrews 2.10, For it was fitting that he, speaking of Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, and that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And do you know what's happening there? Jesus is saying that through my suffering... I am bringing you, sons and daughters, to glory, and we all have the same source. We're brothers because we have, and sisters because we have the same source. And therefore, he says, I will speak of the glory of God to all my brothers in the midst of the congregation and together. This is Jesus saying, uh, as a part of the congregation, we're going to praise his name together. He says, We're family. Jesus says, Because of my sacrifice, now we are family. And there's nothing that can sever that reality. 
And listen, here's what I want you to see. When you see the seed of God's love, when you experience the seed of God's love in Christ sown in your heart through the gospel, it's so powerful that it actually changes you. It transforms you. It makes you new, new birth, so that you have the very nature of God and so that you begin to love as you have been loved. Listen, if you are here this morning and you have not put your faith in Christ, Can I just exhort and encourage you to put your faith in Christ today that you might know the joy and the peace of becoming a part of God's family, that you might have peace with God and have him as your heavenly father and also have all his children as your brothers and sisters for all eternity. If if that's you this morning, can I encourage you to repent and put your faith in Christ? If you want to know more about what that is, please come see me after the service. Talk to someone that you came with or, or who invited you or any of the members here in this church. So brothers and sisters, through the gospel, he has made you family and he's made you new creatures. Therefore, love one another sincerely and earnestly from a pure heart so that we might be a faithful witness to the world of both the truth and the power of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and our King and our elder brother. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we we give you thanks that we have you as our Father. We give you thanks that uh, we have one another as brothers and sisters and pray that by your word you would help us to love one another, that we would put your love for us on display in the way that we love one another. We know that we can't do this apart from your spirit, so Lord, help us. Help us by your grace. Help us uh, by the power at work in us uh, by your spirit that we might be faithful witnesses Uh, to all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.